Welcome to another episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and while Vicky's not able to join us, it's great to have Natasha Benjamin, our Associate Director at Blue Frontier, back again. Hi, Natasha. Hey, David. Great to see you. I'm so glad you suggested we have Cassia Medor as our guest. Cassia is a longtime professional surfer, known for her stylish longboard competitions, plus grace and flow in and out of the water. In fact, the New York Times once dubbed her the Queen of Nose Riding a technique we'll get into later. It's over 25 years since she started surfing as a teenager. She now has her own line of low-impact women's surf products, including wetsuits and yoga mats made from recycled wetsuits. She's also committed to protecting the ocean that gives her and all of us so much stoke. So, Cassia, before we get into all that, we'd like to know, as you were raised here on California's Golden Shore, what was your first experience? What's your first memory of the ocean? Oh my gosh, like I would say that my first memories, because it's kind of like if I'm thinking about it right now, just really feeling into every year we'd go down to San Diego from Los Angeles where I grew up as a kid and we would spend one week down in Solana Beach. And that's when, because growing up as a Valley kid, the ocean was like this like magical place and it was a place that we'd visit in the summer. And that's where my dad would go surfing and I would boogie board and later surfing, but at first it was boogie boarding and I wouldn't get out of the water all day. And I just remember seeing the sand at that time. And I thought that San Diego had gold in the sand because it had pyrite. And it was just like these gold flakes running up and down the ocean. And just remember how clear and warm and these golden flakes And that's really a huge and vivid memory for me when I think about, you know, kind of early ocean um, memories, as well as like the movement, because I wouldn't get out of the ocean all day. I would go to sleep every night and I would really feel this like rocking motion. And that was really um, a feeling that I think I've been chasing ever since. Wow. So the, the golden sand of San Diego. Yeah, I had my lost decade in Ocean Beach, San Diego, uh, body surfing there. You you got in seriously into board surfing around 14. Oh, wh- how'd that evolve? Yeah, like, you know, going down there with my family every year, I really wanted to go surfing. And, you know, it was my dad's time to go surfing. And as much as he'd get me out on a wave or two, he was really wanting to surf, which I get it. Um, He also wanted me to like learn the rhythms and the language of the ocean. So he said, hey, if you really want to go surfing, why don't you do junior lifeguards and you can learn about the ocean. You can become a strong swimmer. You can learn that language and then you can come surfing with me. So it's he didn't have teachers. He just had a bunch of people that would take him surfing with them. So I think it was just a different time. You know, he grew up in Downey, so they'd just go down Beach Boulevard and surf Bolsa Chica and stuff like that. Um, So for him, he was like, learn the ocean and then you can come with me because then I know that I can trust you in the water because you'll know what's up. And I think that that was honestly the best way to teach me a because we weren't arguing as everybody know if they have like a partner or somebody they love if they try and teach them how to surf it's probably not helpful for the relationship which is great to go learn from other people 
right? But at that time, being a kid, I really got to um, understand the rhythms of the ocean. I really got to understand the the riptides and the way it moved. I really got to understand um, in a deeper way that rhythm and the cycles. And I think that really helped me to learn how to surf because at the end of the day, surfing is really riding up like standing up on a wave but it's like when do we even catch that wave when so it really kind of gave me a more i think vertical trajectory in when i started surfing it i i learned a lot faster through that process water safety and ocean knowledge were were key then and being a strong swimmer and like feeling confident in the ocean. You know, there's a lot of people that I teach now and I'm grateful to teach now, probably because I didn't have necessarily a teacher, right? Um, and that's actually how Natasha and I met through uh, one of our, our, you know, surf retreats that we do and we got to connect that way. But really it's like, yeah, it's like surfing is something that I'll do my whole life and it's a way I navigate, work, you know, my life on land as well as in the ocean. And it's really like through community and connection and being able to share a couple of things that took me a long time to learn on myself with people and, and help their trajectory and their awareness more within the ocean. But it's something that I experience a lot. People have a lot of fear around the ocean. People maybe don't feel confident in the ocean. They don't feel confident in themselves in the ocean because it is a big, beautiful, vast element that is the strongest force of nature. And as humans, we often feel small. And we often feel fragile and we often feel overwhelmed in the immensity of the ocean and its raw power and life force. Cassia, when, when we met um, in Sano at Salty Sensations, uh, we talked a lot about the force of, of the ocean and the, the forces of nature. And one of the things that you said um, that's, that stuck with me is how you've seen the ocean change in your lifetime as a surfer and as someone who cares about the ocean. And you described how when you were a kid, there used to be kelp off the coast um, and how that's changed pretty, you know, in a pretty short period of time. Can you can you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, I think just to being a surfer and somebody who spends a lot of time outside, whether it's camping or on the beach or just, you know, the elements really dictate and how the elements move and the winds and the currents and the tides and the ocean moves. I'm just in it all the time. And and that is something that really um, the 26 plus years I've been surfing off the California coastline and all over the world, I've seen a lot of drastic changes and one of them being kelp and seagrass and definitely during one point of time in my life i lived down because obviously it was a dream of mine to go live in san diego so i lived down in oceanside and i was surfing the reefs between cardiff and swamis which are two surf breaks in north county san diego and there used to be these huge kelp beds out the back that would keep the wind down and they would also feed the whole ecosystem that exists right there, keeping it in harmony. And I've seen those kelp, you know, kelp beds disappear. I remember a lot more kelp in and around Cardiff as a break I surfed. I remember a lot more kelp in and around Leo Carrillo, a break that I surfed. Even Malibu, first point, you know, going up into Santa Cruz County, there's a lot of kelp there. And even so, you know, when you're really talking to people, you're like, oh, actually, there's not as much kelp. So just just witnessing um, 
you know, the kelp disappearing a lot off just the breaks that I surf alone. And then knowing that it's interesting seeing something and experiencing something from the surface or from the beach. You can see it visibly, but then it's really when you dive under, you really notice, wow, you know, there's urchin barrens, there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, reef and rock exposed where there used to be thriving kelp forests that were home to so many creatures and and really you know what is contributing towards them just disappearing so quickly yeah. has been something at the forefront of my thoughts you know and surfers have this kind of love-hate relationship with kelp or maybe more hate than love sometimes when your fin gets caught on it but as we know, um, and as a marine scientist and someone who's working on these issues, uh, that kelp is really critical. And we've lost in some areas up to 95% of our kelp forests, as I, I know, you know, and I've been really helping kind of elevate this story around kelp and getting in the water and, and telling people this story. Um, we're actually working on a film, Sequoias of the Sea, about what's happening with the kelp. So I'm so excited that this, the surf community is, is getting involved and that your voice is kind of elevating that issue. Absolutely. And yes, like definitely like when you get stuck in the kelp, it's not that fun. I call it like, you know, the ocean Xerox, it just Xeroxes you off the board. And at the same time, kelp is like a, you know, it creates a sanctuary, really. Like it's, you know, sharks, the reason that there's no fatal shark attacks in Santa Cruz County itself, like within that pocket is because there is so much kelp. And as you go up past the coast and there's not as much kelp, that's where the sharks are actually. And sharks are an essential part of the ecosystem. So I'm not saying no to sharks. I love sharks. They're so valuable and important in the ocean, you know, as is every creature and life form in the ocean, a valuable and important part of that ecosystem, you know, continuing to stay healthy and thriving. That being said, there's no shark attacks in the kelp. That's why all the otters are hanging in the kelp. And that's why all the seals are in the kelp and the surfers were happy little creatures in the kelp fluffing around. And you don't really have to worry about a shark taking you out. Yeah, I, I definitely have more of a love relationship with kelp. And I know how important it is um, in just so many aspects of um, our larger you know, planet ecosystem and, and how like a lot of our carbon is sequestered through, you know, these kelp forests and how it's like a really essential part of the food chain and how it's really just an essential part of ocean health and how that kind of like big heat blob that went through between like 2012 and 15 was also a huge contributing factor towards uh, a lot of the giant starfish dying and their you know, being an essential part of like, you know, they keep in check the balance of the urchins. And now there's these kind of like desert urchin barons that are kind of like ravishing through and they're in zombie mode, just attacking each other and they've eaten through all the kelp and, you know, there's just so many things. So as we're starting to see um, just more and more species and, and, and life forms not being as prevalent within these really fragile ecosystems, like everything just starts to kind of like fall apart. It's interesting, you know, kelp's like the new coral. These are the the places as divers we love to go is, is coral reefs, tropical coral reefs and kelp forest, both of which are in serious trouble because of climate change. 
Help also has that love hate. You, you hate it when the help stalks try and rip the regulator out of your mouth. But it's an incredible habitat with full of biodiversity and and so much life. And and you're always learning new things. Like I hadn't thought that helps also good for grooming the waves, for smoothing out the surfer, for surfers like you, which is particularly important for somebody like yourself. You're a longboarder and you need really clean waves to do what you do, which is some incredible images I see of, of you um, nose riding, hanging uh, your feet and your legs off the front of a longboard. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your style and how you developed it. I mean, I think like that's it, like perfectly groomed waves. I, I grew up in the valley and some of the closest beaches for me were um, the perfect point breaks of Los Angeles, Malibu, First Point and Leo Carrillo and Rincon being some of them, Topanga, which are all perfect right hand point breaks, which really lend themselves to riding, you know, classic style longboards in a classic style way, you know, um, like those old Gidget movies and, you know, kind of some of the films that also really inspired me were really kind of like, I think the things that I took into account when I started to find my own style within the ocean. And as you mentioned, David, uh, it's interesting because really kelp does groom the waves. Um, so as it filters out the wind, it's also an important filter for the waters, you know? And, and so just thinking of kind of like how, you know, it's a filter in a lot of different ways filters out our carbon and and all that so i think yeah it's it's perfectly groomed waves that really lended themselves to me having the time and space on long walls of perfect peeling rights that definitely helped me to find my style on the ocean and like rel sun did in hawaii i think you bring a, a certain joy to uh to california surf and and maybe also um inspiration for, um, you know, a lot of, of women in the surf who were kind of women and people of color were not, you know, part of the California surf scene post-war. And that's that's changing. And, and how do you see that change in terms of the culture and, and in terms of your own role? Yeah, I mean, I guess, too, it's like the like Kathy, she was Kathy, the original Gidget. She was just down at Malibu the other day giving a talk to a bunch of people. And, you know, really what she helped to inspire, you know, it was really balanced at that time. I think there was like a lot of guys and girls hanging out at the beach, like community vibes. And and that's really what has always been the scene at First Point Malibu. Um, you know, one of the first women to ever go down the line on a board, Vicki Flaxman, was at First Point Malibu. So I think there's always been like a really good balance between Malibu and obviously Gidget. And there's been a lot of female energy there that's felt like that. And I think the rest of the world, like in a lot of ways, is catching up. You know, it's like the Hawaiians, like surfing was a sport of kings and queens. It wasn't, you know, exclusive. It was very inclusive. And I think that that is really spreading across the world. And there's been different times and, and places. Like, I think finally, you know, as much as that has been like kind of like part of it since the beginning, there was also a huge part when it started to be brought into the competitive arena, right? In the 70s and 80s, that's where it seemed like there was a shift. And that's where it seemed like more of kind of like, 
a competitive male dominated energy was brought into surfing and the surf world. And that's when there was a lot of women out there surfing and there's just not that much documentation of it because film was expensive. You know, there's that new movie out, She she Surfs, and, and I think it's called She Surfs or Surf Girl, I forget right now. And I apologize for not having the name. I've, I'm like a little tired today. I've been surfing a lot, but uh, I think it's She Surfs. And a lot of the women that were charging at that time, there's just not that much documentation of them. You brought up Rel Sun, there's not that much documentation of them because the magazines weren't paying for the filmers to process their film. And it was expensive to process film. And the magazines weren't buying stuff of women. So the men out there documenting, mostly men out there documenting the surfing that was happening at their time, that time, just weren't pointing the camera at the women. And they were out there charging just as much as the men. It's only been up until very recently that the surfing world has actually given equal pay to women when it comes to competition, has tried to give more of an equal venue to them. And, and we're seeing that, you know, with the rest of our civilization as well. You know, it's like really women fighting hard for getting equal recognition. And, and really now you're seeing it out there. The lenses are pointed at the women. The women are, are, are able to kind of like show what's up. And and I think it's really important, but women have really been out there for a long time doing it, you know, since the beginning of what surfing was, the king and queen of Hawaii surfing waves together. It's always been very inclusive. And it was just, I think, through that time of like, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, that it was like exclusively kind of being more male dominant. And now it's coming back to balance, which is awesome. Coming into surfing a little bit later in life, and and trying, I was just trying to get a wetsuit for the you know Northern California cold water with a hood, with an integrated hood. Many of the surf companies wouldn't make wetsuits for women with a hood that you could only find a men's suit. And now that I mean things are changing, and you've also created a whole line of wetsuits geared around women surfing. Um, how did you get into make? I mean, obviously you've been in the water, you understand what what you need to stay warm and comfortable and flexible in the water. How did, tell us about how you started making wetsuits. Yeah, so thank you so much. So riding for my big sponsors as many years as I was, it was really hard. I would be going to somewhere super cold like Chile or Scotland. And um, I would have to get, you know, a men's Quicksilver suit because they just didn't make wetsuits that were warm enough for us women in Roxy. And it was guys making our wetsuits, no women. So I actually started making wetsuits for Roxy. And I was drawing up designs. I was thinking about it all the time, thinking about different patterns that I wanted to wear. Because I mean, how does a guy know what I want? You know, I mean, I just heard this the other day that most bra companies are actually men, which like, how do they know what we want? How do they know what we need? Which is right. interesting. So I was like, man, you know, I mean, I, I love the bros out there, you know, thank you. And just as you don't want me designing a wetsuit for you, I'm sure, because I don't know what you need, you don't know what I need. So that's why I started developing, you know, wetsuits for Roxy. And I think being a California surfer, we're in wetsuits all the time. 
uh, for the most part. That being said, it was something that I was really inspired to do. And, and I left my sponsors to actually create my own line of wetsuits to actually buy women for women. You know, I have so many women. I was just surfing the other day and I met some woman in the water and she was ripping. I was like, what's up? And we we're out there chatting. She's like, oh my gosh, I have one of your wetsuits. It fits me better than any other wetsuit I've ever had because I have hips. And I and I'm like, exactly. I have hips because I'm a woman and like I want a suit to fit me a certain way. So we're just vibing on that. And it's it's uh it's moments like that that really make me feel uh super grateful for you know how much hard work and dedication goes into what I'm doing. And and then too, it's like it doesn't make sense to you know, invite people to send me their wetsuits and recycle them. Like it's not effective for my bottom line, you know, um, to have the wetsuit recycling program, but nothing I do is for a bottom line. Nothing I do is for profit. It's all for the betterment, you know? And so being able to have this recycling program where wetsuits don't end up in landfills and I can recycle them with my friends at Suga Yoga and turn them into yoga mats and, you know, just invite people to think differently about the end of life cycle of what, you know, they are utilizing. Because at the end of the day, wetsuits are like a utilitarian product, you know? You kind of need a wetsuit to go surfing or else in some places you would get hypothermia and not make it out, you know, just like a surfboard is a necessary tool to get you in the water. And I think the more people that are in the water are aware of our environmental issues and how much what we're doing as a species is affecting our natural environment. And it is up to us to make those choices to affect it in a positive way. And I really think that it's the lifestyle that people get into and it's the lifestyle and that connection with nature, that connection with life in uh, the purest, most raw form, that connection with riding waves, which is essentially you're like riding creation as it is happening in real time. And there's no two waves that are ever alike. It's that kind of, you know, waking up at sunrise and seeing the sunrise from the water and like riding those first waves in the light of day and, and seeing some otters maybe over there, some, you know, a whale in the background or, you know, it's, it's really these connections. So I think it's like a really deep and, and kind of spiritual connection that's beyond the rational mind that really gets people to surf. And then it's the connection and the community that happens on the beach in and around riding waves and sharing and collaborating. That is what keeps people going back because yeah, a lot of them aren't going to be a professional surfer. And at the end of the day, I never started surfing to be a professional surfer. That was not anything that was even on my radar as like a thought it happened. Yes. And I'm going to surf forever. I'm actually more excited about surfing now than I ever have been in my life. And I stopped surfing professionally many years ago now when I left my sponsors. I think you, you brought up something that really resonated for me when I started surfing is the community aspect of it. And at Salty Sensations, it really wasn't about learning how to surf or you know, getting to the nose. It was about building that community and getting stoked about being in the water. And that's such a huge part of it. I mean, whether or not you catch the waves is almost secondary in some ways. It's really about like being in the water and being with your surf buddies. 
And it's also like, I remember as a kid, just like going to the beach with my dad and like him and all the old dudes in the parking lot would just be sitting there drinking coffee, talking. It was a meeting point. They just wanted to go hang out with each other. Yeah, maybe we'd paddle out, maybe not, but it was a ritual, you know, and it was part of that ritual. And I think that's also what you're sharing, Natasha, and what we really you know, also try to create. Yeah, I mean, we don't try, we just, it is created in the environment of bringing together people for a retreat because it's that connection with community and there's, you know, community chats after and people are meeting up this place, that place and the other and somebody has a cool podcast, they're sharing it or somebody just made a book and they're putting it out there and, you know, oh my gosh, we're celebrating each other. And I think that's what's so awesome and unique about surfing and surf culture because it is more than a sport, it is a lifestyle. I think things are changing and we're watching it happen in real time. Um, yeah. I hope, yeah. And I mean, you, you and your, all those friends of yours are doing some really cool stuff. And I, the idea is to create that momentum and get the, the bigger brands and the bigger companies to, to follow. And that that's it you know it's like us all kind of like okay like everything there's nothing about humanity that's sustainable not one thing about us as a species on this planet like nothing about the way that we live our lives or do anything currently is sustainable so how do we collaborate and innovate in new ways that are going to be in more harmony with this planet like, it's almost like we needed to find an edge to bounce off of, like to find balance, you need to know where the edges are, you need to know what's in balance and what's out of balance, and then communicate towards finding more neutral ways of existing and being. So I feel like technology is at a point where it's giving us this opportunity and it really takes the willingness to want to move forward. Of the people. Yeah. <laughs> So Cassia as one of the more well-spoken uh, marine mammals we've had on the show. I'd like to uh, thank, thank you. you so much for being part of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. I love it. Thank you all for what you're doing and communicating. And I think it's conversations and collaboration that gives us the opportunity to move forward and give people solutions to be a part of and activate people because i think it's easy to go into overwhelm over all the issues that exist and it's through community and collaboration and conversations like this that we can hopefully move the needle and give people support and inspiration to be part of the change that we all you know would be of benefit to be a part of Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean. Not to the blue frontier.
Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky. There you are. Good boy, Sparky.